Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you today with another great episode, as you may be surprised to hear. We are going to start you off with a little bit of news. We got a little bit from everywhere today. We're going to head into a super interesting stat corner, in our opinion. We're going to cover win expectancies. So we always talk about like 10 runs is equal to a win. What does that mean? Who's calculating that? What do those stats look like? Um, hopefully this will give you guys a really, really good background for judging some of those advanced stats. Like, well, and, I, and I will note that I think this is actually our first stat that we'll be talking about that's about evaluating team performance as opposed to individual performance. So it's absolutely. actually change there. That's absolutely correct. And then uh, we have a special, special segment at the end tonight. We are both going to challenge each other. We're going to make each other walk out onto a limb and make five bold predictions for the 2020 season, now that we know what it's kind of shaping up like. Um, So, guys, make sure that you record this episode so that you can play this back to us in, you know, six months, a year, however long you want, and just show us just how wrong we always are. Maybe we'll have to do a, a retrospective of how we did on these predictions at the end of the season. Yeah, that's Honestly, such a good I, idea. I'll, I'll be proud if I'm right on even one of these. So Yeah, that's, okay, that's, that's good. So you went bold. I like that. Uh, one of mine I don't think is bold, but I think it might be by traditional standards. Um, but, hey, w- let's not jump the gun there, okay? Let's get started right with some news um, right off the top. We got news out of the National Football League. Uh, Patty Mahomes. 10 years, 503 big ones. That's a big contract for a man who will now be a chief through 2031. Yeah, so this is now the the biggest contract in sports history, from my understanding. And I was it Mike Trout who had it beforehand? I believe it was, yes. Yeah, so you know, you, you hate to see Trout taken off of the uh, the top of the leaderboard, but I will say that number two, though. So, but there's also a realer sense in which he's still at the top of the leaderboard because one thing to focus on about this, and this is really true out of a lot of football contracts, which is that only 140 million of this contract is guaranteed. So you know, yeah, when, a, right. when a baseball player signs a contract, you know, doesn't matter if they if they tear their ACL the next day they're making every dollar of that contract for a football player. There's going to be some injury guarantee. That's, you know, will vary actually vary a lot based on the the structure of a contract. Yeah. And usually most of the contract is not guaranteed. I think part of that has to do with the fact that injuries are such a huge risk in the NFL, but it also makes it so that you, you really need to be an expert to understand NFL contracts because right. you look at a lot of these like five year sixty million dollar contract, but then if you go look at it, it's like, well, it's really a two year twenty-five million dollar contract. And if the team doesn't like the player after that, they can just cut them all the guarantees right. already play paid. So yeah, football contracts work a lot differently than than baseball. Baseball. Yeah, and they're kind of draconian in that sense. Like, hey, it's kind of messed up that they're just like, oh yeah, and so if you get hurt by the way, we actually don't care, but uh you're not getting paid. And they're also just like, well, basically, we'll tell you that this is how much we'll pay you if you play well for us consistently over a period of time that's unrealistic for an NFL athlete for the most part. So in the specific uh, case of Patrick Mahomes, though, I don't think it's going to be much of a problem for him unless he gets hurt. Like he's he's 24. He's, you know, maybe the greatest young quarterback ever. And 
you know, I don't see any reason to think he's going to decline over the next 10 years where quarterback is like maybe the only position in the NFL where there really is a pretty big learning curve and you can expect someone to reach their peak more yeah. in their twenties or early thirties. Absolutely. But I do think that you have to expect for a mobile quarterback like this. And yeah, he is just a transcendent athlete. So that definitely helps with injury concerns, but you got to think of the mobile quarterback like this over a 10 year span it would be just impossible basically to see him miss less than half a season um, in any given 16 game span. So there's going to be some loss here, but the thing about Mahomes though, is that like he is mobile in the pocket, but he's not running. I I know in the Super Bowl, like he went and like made all those big runs and was taking a lot of hits in that game, but like, and, and they were amazing runs. Like I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a, he's not great when he gets on the run, but like he's so incredible out of the in the pocket and extending plays that like I think he can easily adapt to like being a pure pocket passer because oh, yeah. he also has the best, you know, the best arm talent of like maybe anyone ever. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no question about that. Truly, truly an amazing guy, um, and. Honestly, so much fun to watch. One of my favorite guys in the NFL to watch, but also like seems like just a pretty chill guy. You know, he seems like just a pretty cool dude. I hang out with him. It's fun to listen to his interviews. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I love Patty Holmes. He's just he's he's a great face of new face of the NFL. Definitely, definitely. Um, I I guess the only other question this brings up is if Lamar Jackson keeps putting up video game numbers, what could they give him in a few years? Um, I'd love to see it. You know, I, I do. I think Lamar is a transcendent talent, but I do think he's a bit more a product of, of his system than, than Mahomes. No, I think, I think you drop Mahomes on any team in the league. He's going to make them an instant playoff team. Yeah. He's Uh, like Russell Wilson in that sense. Like he just does so much to make everyone else around him better. Whereas Baltimore was a great place for Lamar Jackson to play Lamar Jackson style of football. And that's not taking away from what Lamar is doing. Like oh, 100%. I don't, I don't think there's anyone else that could do what he's doing, but I just think it's like, you know, it's, it takes a really strong infrastructure around him to do that. Yeah. And I mean, just to finish up on your thought, I agree that there truly is no other player in the NFL, including Patrick Mahomes, who could have put up, Lamar's numbers last year regardless of the system they were placed in like I I literally just think it's impossible for a quarterback not named Lamar Jackson to rush and pass as well as he did last year Um, but I do agree with your overall sentiment Um, so with that we'll kind of jump over into the MLB Um, I want to just first talk about uh, Fat Joe West who came out yesterday or a couple days ago and Basically, I'm going to paraphrase here, but not, no, no, no. I'll just read the quote directly. He said, I don't believe in my heart that all these deaths have been from the coronavirus. He says, I believe it may have contributed to some of the deaths, but I'm not going to opt out. I'm going to go to work. And until you take me off the field or I get hurt, I'm working. So the thing about Joe West just always saying dumb shit is it's like, he's also a terrible up. That's so, the whole point. He's yeah. so, he, it's the Joe West show. He doesn't care about the game. He's out there to be a weird looking celebrity. I, I don't even, he drives me nuts when I watch him, man. I He's go crazy. Him and Angel Hernandez. 
it's uh, I always find it interesting that like MLB umpires, I feel more than any other um, sport, like have personalities and like fans know them and all fans know the same umpires because of the way that umpires kind of rotate around the league. And I think it's funny that you could basically go to a fan of like any team and be like, how do you feel about Joe West? And they're gonna be like, I hate Joe West. He's the worst. Uh, but, but yeah, so I mean, this is crazy stuff for him to say because we're talking about coronavirus at a time when just an insane amount of the league is getting coronavirus. Have you seen these latest numbers, Sam? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a sense in which it's as a percentage of people getting tested, it's, it's not a lot, but it's also still a lot. Yeah, because it doesn't matter as a percentage of people getting tested. We yeah. know that there's a threshold and it's more likely a, a, fi- a number than a ratio of when people are going to say, this is too dangerous. I think we got to call this off. Yeah. And, yeah. What's the number right now? It was over right? 40, right? What's that? It's over 40, right? Oh, yeah. Right now, the number is 48, actually, that we're looking – or 43, I'm sorry, that we're looking at. And we're looking at some big-name guys. This isn't just, you know, schlubs. We have Freddie Freeman of the Braves. We have uh, Charlie Blackman of the Rockies, Salvador Perez, Luis Urias, Miguel Sano, DJ LeMayhew, Scott Kingery, Tommy Pham. This is a list of real MLB players. And – you know, I think it's going to give us a glimpse into what we might expect from this season, and that is uncertainty, unpredictability. You could be, Sam, in the middle of the hunt for the NL East, and in your series against the Nats for basically who's going to win the NL East, Pete Alonso may get corona, and then the next day DeGrom may get corona, and your season's it's, over. You know, that, that would really suck, but the Mets – they have no no corona coming in. These guys are a close knit family. They're gonna they're gonna keep it together. They're gonna make sure no one gets it, and 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 they're gonna stay healthy and win the season. You know, so I, I you know that. I do I do think, you know, it's possible that the Mets have a season that's derailed. But they're you know, a lot of the players have come out. They said the team's doing an incredible job. Brogy's been a great leaguer through this, so it really does seem like compared to some other teams where people are really complaining about the testing protocols and stuff, all the Mets players seem to be really on board and like the way the organization is dealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have heard some really negative reactions from players. Um, we heard Sean Doolittle come out with a pretty strong statement. Uh, we recently heard a group of players make a claim that the conditions and the testing and all of the precautions, the PPE that all the teams and owners said was going to be there just isn't there yet. Um, and this isn't the type of thing that you like get a second chance with really, you know, if, a if any given team messes this up badly enough, basically there's no coming back from that. You know, it's not like they can just be like, okay, well, we'll just play with minor leaguers for the first two weeks of the season while all of our guys quarantine and then we'll make a push. Like it's a 60 game season. You don't have two weeks to spare. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly think it's going to end up having a big effect on the season. And my only hope is that the season can still happen because, you know, it's, it's still honestly up in the air. I mean, everyone's acting like it's going to happen. And, you know, the number of cases in the U.S. keeps climbing. So, so we'll see. Uh, 
which is shocking to me uh, to see the number of cases climb with our strong leadership and uh, really well-informed public. Uh, so, you know, that's an interesting angle, I think, of the MLB season. We'll have to keep an eye on it, and who knows? I, I mean, I don't know what I wrote down, and I don't know what you wrote down, but I could imagine some bold predictions for the 2020 season being corona-laced. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, wow. I don't well, know. Sounds like you got one. All right. So, well, I told you I don't know what I have. Oh, well, that's not good. <laughs> We're going to find out. I'm just going to pull uh, things out of a hat. All right. With that, though, let's move to everyone's favorite segment in that it's Stat Corner. And we promised you we'd be talking about some win expectancy stats. So what do we that's mean right. by that? It's ways of basically taking other stats about how a team performed in a given season and sort of making a more accurate prediction of their talent level as opposed to their actual win-loss record. So, you know, there might be one team that goes, you know, 81 and 81, who was actually really lucky to be a 500 team. They played, like, much worse than a 500 team during the season. And there might be another team that goes 81 and 81 that actually had a pretty unlucky season and the things had broken their way a bit more. They, like, they actually played well enough that they could have been a playoff team. So, you know – Even over 162 games, you can see deviations between a team's actual record and sort of what they deserved, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a really interesting topic for us to approach now, Sam, because there will be a heightened emphasis on context in a 60-game season in 2020. It will be so much more important because over a full season, you hope that context, and that is the positions that you come up to bat in, the position of the game when you come in as a reliever, et cetera, et cetera. You hope that over 162 games, those things normalize so that everybody has about an even amount. And it's not really true, which is why we get all the types of context neutral stats that we've uh, explained to you guys in the past. But I think that in this particular season, it'll be really interesting because you won't have that large sample size. Um, And so you may actually see some crazy run differentials. So With that, I think maybe the best thing for us to do, Sam, tell me if you want to do something else, but I think the best thing for us to do is to break down our two different stats individually so that we can get an idea. Yeah, I think think it makes sense to start with Pythagorean expected wins because that's sort of the original stat in sort of predicting a a higher order of a team's performance. And I also think it, it, it has a really crucial finding that we've sort of been talking about a lot on this podcast as sort of an accepted fact in the broader field of baseball analytics. So basically, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. So we'll talk about Pythagorean expected wins, and then we'll talk about the second stat, which is called base runs from fan graphs. Yeah. So Sam, get us started with uh, Pythagorean expected wins. So Pythagorean expected wins basically – What it does is it looks at your – it's really quite simple. It looks at your run differential during a given season, and then it basically makes a conversion that we've talked about many times on the show, which is that 10 runs is equal to one win about. And this is actually a conversion that was originally found in research for the Pythagorean expected win formula where they basically just looked at many years of data – fitting the different fitting run differential versus wins. And they basically found a slope of one win is 10 runs of run differential. So if you have a plus 10 run differential in a season, then Pythagorean expected wins would say, we expected you to go 82 and 80 where zero runs is 500 or 81 and 81. 
And then if you were plus 100 in run expectancy, then Pythagorean expected wins would say we expected you to go 91 and 71. So you just add 10 wins to 81, subtract 10 losses from 81. Uh, and uh, basically that's, that's all there is to it. But the, the idea is basically that basically how many, you know, winning, it, it's sort of unsustainable for a team to win a bunch of close one run games all the time. Like it pays to blow people out. Uh, so, so basically what this is getting at is that if a, if a team has a pretty small run differential, but is winning a, a lot more games and they're probably getting like pretty lucky in close games. Right. And so, Pythagorean expected wins took this idea and brought it mainstream. Basically they said we can use the number of runs gained by a team and the number of runs surrendered by a team. And we can combine that information to get some type of estimator on how good this team actually should have been. Um, and just before we move into base runs, let's talk about some of those teams last year. So by Pythagorean run expectancy, uh, the best team in the league last year were the Dodgers, um, and they actually underperformed a little bit. They were at minus two, so they won two fewer games than they were expected to. Astros number two, Yankees number three. So it, this is this is not groundbreaking, um, but it can give us some interesting facts, and I think some of the most interesting of those facts are the plus minus who overperformed or who underperformed the most in a given season. Um, and we'll talk about those uh, at the end after we go into base runs. So um, with that, Sam, do you want to transition from Pythagorean run expectancy to base runs? Sure. So base runs basically goes a step beyond Pythagorean expected wins. And it says it not only asks, you know, how lucky were you to get your wins given how many runs you scored or allowed, it asks another question, which is basically how lucky were you to score the number of runs you did versus allow the mm -hmm. number of runs you did. And basically what it's getting at is something called sequencing. And let me give an example so you, so you guys can understand that concept, that concept. So imagine a situation where there are two outs and the base is empty. And in one situation, there are three straight walks. And then the fourth guy up hits a grand slam. And then the next guy gets out. So you have walk, 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 home run, out. Now imagine another scenario where two outs, nobody on, a guy hits a home run. And then the next three guys walk, and then the next guy got out. Now, in some sense, you could say these two scenarios were exactly the same. In five at-bats, there were three walks, a home run, and an out. But in a context, you know, Dependent. It, look at in a context-dependent sense, they were totally different. In the first case, they scored four runs. In the next case, they only scored one run. So this is an example of the sequencing of the hits you get mattering a lot in how many runs you score in a given season. But it's also something that there's not much evidence that teams have any control over because you know again, you know you can control getting hits, getting home runs, stopping hits, getting outs. But the question is basically, you know. Can you really control the order in which those things happen? You know, you might feel that a guy got a clutch hit in an important situation, but there's really no evidence over large sample sizes that this is something right. teams have any control over. Um, so base so runs then goes ahead and they try to take this out by not looking at runs scored and runs allowed. They look at the number of each type of uh, outcome of an at-bat for both offense and defense. Um, and then they put it on some type of 
normalized scale to the uh, rest of the league. Yeah, and 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 we've talked we've talked in past episodes, for instance, in WOBA, how there are these empirical linear weights that are used to judge the run value of every type of these outcomes in a context neutral sense. So base runs is simply using the, these same results, but now just putting them in the terms of the number of the runs that the team allows or scores. Um, with that, we can take a look at the base runs leaderboard as well. And you can see that actually the single biggest uh, underperformer last year were the Reds. The Reds had a minus nine uh, run differential in terms of base runs last year, indicating that they got extremely unlucky actually throughout the minus, season. Sorry, a minus nine win differential. So Win differential, that's right. And that could have yeah, changed so, so the NL Central. They won 84 yeah, games even I mean, without it. What we're looking at there, a nine-win differential there, is basically base runs with, to the Reds last year sees them as basically being so unlucky that they lost Mike Trout. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you basically. think of it, that, that's pretty crazy. Um, and actually, although you, something to be said, the next unluckiest team was the Tigers. I mean, could they have really been yeah, that unlucky? They, well, which maybe says it's, you know, it's almost impossible to be as bad as the Tigers were last year that you needed to yeah. even get unlucky to be that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Orioles are up there too because they're just like, this is breaking our model. How could a team be honestly this bad? Now, it, interestingly enough, the luckiest team last year was actually the Yankees, who were nine wins above what was – what whose record was nine wins above what base runs would have predicted. And, and sorry if we forgot to mention, the way that base runs converts the runs scored and runs allowed that they predict to wins is exactly the same way that Pythagorean expected does for, 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 run different, for actual run differential. That's right. Um, uh, and I think any of us who watched the Yankees play last year know intuitively that they had a trash team and that they played way above their talent level for the majority of the season. Yeah, and and you know, obviously, then there was there was a lot of sequencing sequencing luck coming in that you know, we, maybe we didn't recognize during the actual, you know, while you're watching the games. But this here, here was the sequence. Gio Urshela was hitting ninth. Okay, they throw him a changeup that doesn't change. He hits it to the left field gap. Brett Gardner hits one off of his fists into <laughs> ten feet past the second baseman. That's first and second. Then some guy hits a pop-up to right field that goes out because Yankee Stadium has 200-foot fences. Three runs when you really should have a runner stranded on second for every other team in the league. Every game that I watched of theirs last year. So, so you, heard, you heard it there, guys? Base runs confirmed. The <laughs> uh, although uh, they, did, they did still say they deserve to win 94 games, which is still quite a good season. Yeah, fine. They were all right. Fine. Um, so just as a summary here, before we go into our b -b -b bold predictions for 2020, we have two different types of run expectancy or sorry, win expectancy calculations for teams. So this overall, a type of statistic is trying to calculate based on the performance of a team over a given season, how many wins that team deserved. And from the number of wins they say that the statistic says or predicts they should deserve. 
versus what they actually did, they're able to calculate this plus minus that we were just talking about. So the two statistics are Pythagorean expected wins and base runs. Pythagorean expected wins came first. It's the origin of the 10 runs equals a win paradigm that a lot of people are familiar with. And it basically just says 10 runs equals a win. So look at your differential and then divide it by 10 and you know take that number from 500 and you got your answer. Base runs tries to be a little bit more specific. So what they do is they don't take runs scored and runs allowed. They take expected runs scored and expected runs allowed by taking uh, just all sorts of base hits and uh, different outcomes of plate appearances on both offense and defense, and then uses those expected runs allowed and expected runs scored to make the prediction for the uh, record of the team throughout the season. So this is a nifty little tool to stick in your tool belt uh, when you're looking at teams and, you know, you thought they might have been good, but can you get any evidence that maybe they were playing in over their head last year? Um, or, you know, can you glean some insight about the upcoming season for your own pride or for betting or for whatever you want? Um, these are cool stats to do that with. So uh, with that, we're going to, unless, do you have something else, Sam? No, no. I just think, you know, I, I often use these stats as a tool during the season on fan graphs just to look sort of which teams you might expect to be like having better second halves or things like this. You know, yeah. I, I think they're really they're really easy stats to look at, look at on fan graphs and give you a bigger picture of what's actually happening during the season. But yeah, let's get let's get into bold predictions. All right. Do you want so, to start or should I start with it? Well, let, let's describe the section really quickly. So Sam and I both decided to make five bold predictions for the 2020 season. Now, this is going to be really interesting because the question is, how bold did we each go, right? So my feeling is that Sam went pretty bold, but I also think I went bold. So we want to kind of rock the boat here. These are probably all going to be wrong, which is why at the top of the episode, I said, get your tape recorders out. Um, but this is just a fun way to kind of get excited for the season and kind of do a little what if exercise in our head. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll get us started, Sam. I'll give us our, my first bold prediction. 2020 will be a horrible year for pitchers. Pitchers are going to get rocked in 2020. We've seen some historically good pitching um, performances over the last number of years. Some pitchers who have been able to do things that we haven't seen for 30, 40 years. Think, Looking at you, Garrett Cole and Jacob deGrom. I think this year is going to be very bad for pitchers. And I want to shout, uh, I want to actually shout my little brother out for this hot take. Avi Goodman came up with this one. And the idea here is that there's a big change in the league. Pitchers are not allowed to keep the same ball anymore if it makes contact with anybody else because of Corona. So they're going to use like a gazillion balls. And we've all watched a pitcher throw two, three, four balls back before they get one that they want. These guys are kind of nutcases. I'm not sure what the actual effect of the ball on their performance is, but I know that it's a big effect in their head. And I believe that it has a small performance or effect on their real performance. I think some guys are just going to get tripped up by this. I think some guys are going to end up throwing a ball that doesn't feel right in their hands, which we all know is how you end up with a slider that backs up or a breaking ball that doesn't break. And I think we're going to see even more dingers than in the past, but we're actually going to see better hitting 
We're going to see the, the league-wide FIP and the league-wide ERA. We're going to see those go down. We're going to see the league-wide WRC Plus, I think, eclipse 99 this year for the first time in about 10 years. Well, the league average WRC Plus is always 100. No, 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 no. The league-wide WRC Plus for the last five years has been either 96 or 97. Oh, but that's just because they don't include pitchers in the, in the WRC Plus, but then the league average includes the pitchers. Sure. So I guess pitchers don't hit this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's interesting. But we will see a, a league-wide, let's say, OPS that looks way uglier than we've seen in the past. I'll put it that way. Yeah, okay. That's an interesting take, actually. Did you see on Twitter – this thing of Garrett Cole being forced to like throw away a ball and then throw a new one in the next pitch, like Miguel Andujar homer. Yeah. Yeah. So my big takeaway from that was that I needed to draft Miguel Andujar on my fantasy team. That's a takeaway. Yeah. But the other thing was that it cemented this belief that uh, Avi had placed into my brain. Um, And so I, I kind of think that this is going to be a big year for the hitter. I think we're going to see some big duds from pitchers. Um, I'd be shocked. We'll, we'll definitely see an ERA under two. I'd be shocked to see 10 under three. Wow. That's my thought. So I, I have, I have, an ER, I, I have a, a take later that exactly contradicts that. But, but let Ooh, me, that's let, the heat I'm looking for. Let, let, me, let me give my first take, though. And I, All right. And, and there's, there's a little reasoning that goes into this one, so apologies if I go on a little rant here. But, but I'm, I'm going to break this down for why I, I think this is a good hot take. So this year in the schedule, every team will play every, everyone else in their division 10 times. So there will be 60 such interdivisional matchups where you will play that team 10 times over the season. My prediction is that a team will sweep – a 10 game season series from a divisional opponent this year. Now I looked, I looked back to, to see, has this ever happened? Has anyone ever swept a season series? The only example I can find is the Braves swept the Rockies in 13 games in 1993. The last year the Braves were in the NL West, but since 1998, they play 19 games against, you know, everyone in your division. It's basically impossible. 10 games seems like it could also be close to impossible. So considering if you're 50% likely to win a game, if you play that game 10, 10 times, you're about one in a thousand to win all of them. Mm-hmm. If you're 60% likely, you're one in 300. If you're 70% likely to win a single game, you're about one in 35. And if you're 75% likely in a single game, you're about one in 18. Now remember, there are 60 total interdivisional matchups. So there are 60 chances for this to happen. Now, what are some realistic true win percentages that you can expect between the best and the worst teams? And I found a, a, a useful Sabre article by John Richards on this, which basically says, given the true talent of two teams, like their true talent win percentage, what's the probability of one of those teams winning in a given game between each other? So, for example, I looked at the worst team last year. The Tigers were 292 win percentage. The best team were the Astros, who have a 660 winning percentage last year. So by this this method that John Richards had, this would give the Astros an 82% chance to win a single matchup between those two teams, or about a 1-7 in chance to win all 10 matchups. Now, what I did then is – Let's look at the average first place winning percentage and then the average last place winning percentage from last season. 
So the first place winning percentage was 622. And the last place winning, winning percentage was 375. And by this method that I just talked about, we're looking at about a 75% chance in any given game that the best, that the average first place team would beat the average last place team. So again, if we're looking at those average matchups, then one out of 18 times, you're going to win all 10 games. Now there are six of these matchups. There are six divisions. So there are six best teams and worst teams. And within these six, so if you have six chances at one in 18, we're already looking at a 30% chance that this happens. But then remember that there are also some good second place teams and good third place teams that are also going to have a good chance at beating up on these last place teams. And suddenly we start to look like creeping towards maybe 40%, maybe 50% this happens. So that's my bold prediction. And that's a little, some of the back of the envelope math that makes me think it's a reasonable prediction. I don't actually think it's that bold, but I love it. I love the math. I have some qualms with some of your probability calculations, but we can get into that later. But I, I do love the math, um, and I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised to see it. Um, for you to say that it's an over 50% chance, I think, is definitely no, I, a bold I, thing to I, say. I, I think it's accurately somewhere in like the 30 to 40% range based on, on this back-of-the-envelope calculation. Now, yeah. you, you, might be able to do, uh, you might be able to do some more sophisticated analysis, and, and I might actually look into this and, and find my actual – and give my actual finding on the next episode. You should because your, your premise is that the outcomes of games are independent variables, which they're not. There's a covariance between the events, which is going to make the calculation extremely complicated. But we will not get into that on this show because this is a baseball show, not a statistic show. Um, so with that, why don't you start us off on number two? Okay, so number two, I had to, I had to put one Mets prediction in here. This is my Mets prediction. It's that you only put one? Yeah, just one, just one. Oh, my God. You guys can't see, but I'm tipping my cap right now. That's a hell of a job. I, I, well, I'll tell you what I almost did to make it just one. But, okay, my, <laughs> predict, my prediction was that Yoannis Cespedes will hit 12 home runs in the 60-game season and have a WRC plus greater than 125. Now, let's talk about Cespedes' last three healthy seasons. In 2015, he had a 135 WRC plus. And Five hit, years ago. And hit, Five years ago on the calendar. And, and hit 35 home runs in 159 games. In 2016, he had a 136 WRC+, plus, hit 31 home runs in 132 games. In 2017, he had a 132 WRC+, plus, hit 17 home runs in 81 games. And remember, 12 home runs in 60 games is basically, I think it's a 32 home run pace now for a full season. Okay. Yeah. Now you say, but Tespitas hasn't played baseball since then. He played a little in 2018, but, you know, he hasn't really played. He hasn't but played since Little League. He, what you're not seeing is watching, you know, here are the quotes coming out. Michael Contour, <laughs> baseball, is saying, this, this guy, Yoannis, he's hungry right now. He wants to prove people he's, to people he's still elite. He looks like the guy he was in 2015. I'm watching his batting practice, just mashing dingers. Some hit a, a massive two-run shot off of Seth Lugo, an incredible pitcher in a simulated game today. Doesn't even run the bases, just walks back to the dugout. You got it. What else are you going to do? Listen, what do we worry about? We worry about his health. But what does the NL have this year? A DH. Perfect situation for a man that lives to mash to come back and mash dingers and propel 
this Mets team into the playoffs just as he did in 2015. Now, let, let me tell you what my bold prediction was going to be. It was going to be that six, Met, six Mets in the starting lineup this year will have a 120 WRC plus or higher. Oh, my God. Conforto, Nimmo, Ike, uh, sorry, J.D. Davis, Ike Davis. Well, Jesus. Look, if Ike Davis had – that is a bold prediction. If you think Ike Davis can yeah. break 120 WRC plus. J.D. Davis, Jeff McNeil, Pete Alonzo, and Ioannis Cespedes. Six guys that could easily do it. That was going to be my prediction, but I wanted to get specific with Cespedes. But that's my second bold prediction. All right. I appreciate you doing that. So my second bold prediction is that the Nationals and the Reds will prove in the NLCS this year that 2020 is the year of veteran presence and schedule. No two teams have a friendlier schedule. And uh, the Reds don't have a, the best veteran core, but they have the best combo outside of the Nats of veteran core and schedule. And what I mean by that is that for the Reds, it's helpful that they get to play the National League Central, which is pretty top-heavy. And the American for, League Central. For the, and the American League Central and their rival in the American League Central is the Tigers. So they get an extra series against the Tigers, who are just a living doormat. The Nationals have incredible veteran presence, obviously, and their matchup in the AL East is the Orioles. So you're looking at two teams in the National Trust League. Me, I'm not happy about that. You're looking at two teams in the National League who are going to come in with a bunch of guys ready to fire, and they're going to come in with a schedule that gives them an upper hand. Sure, it's uh, maybe a two-game upper hand, but that's all you need in a season like this. So I think veteran presence is a difference maker. I've heard, I've read a lot recently about how rookies are going to be and like uh, system and organizational depth is going to be the difference maker this year. And I could definitely see that. I could definitely see a team like the Rays walking away with it because they're so deep. But I think if things break right at the end of the day, the vets are going to be the ones who are ready to play in this like weird and unorganized season and I think they're going to be the ones who can propel their team in a 60-game season. Weird intangibles like Clubhouse make a much bigger difference than they do over a real sample size. So I'm looking forward to these two teams battling it out in the NLCS. Uh, obviously, this isn't going to happen since the D-backs are going to win the NLCS. But in this bold universe that I'm living in right now, I can't how, wait how for them. the D-backs win the NLCS if the Mets did? No, no, no. The Mets, the Mets win the NLCS in the unrealistic universe. The Nats and Reds play in the bold universe, and then the D-backs play in this, in this universe that we live in. Here. That clarifies it. That clarifies okay. it. Um, it's, it's actually an interesting when you talk about veteran presence, because I do wonder if, like, you know, part of the, you know, maybe the problem for older players is the season's so long, it's so grueling, it's hard to stay healthy for the full season, it's hard to maintain their body. And I do wonder if in this, like, sort of 60-game sprint, you see some older guys having, like, a big of a resurgence because they know they can just go for it in 60 games. It'd be interesting. One, like maybe a guy like Miggy could, could be someone like that. Oh yeah. And actually I think a guy like Joey Votto, who's just been struggling, struggling. I think he's going to come out in a 60 game season and be like, I'm putting it all out there this year. I think he's going to have a good year. Um, and we'll talk a little bit in upcoming episodes when we cover my uh, fantasy draft coming up here. We'll talk about how I am putting extra stock in veterans like Paul Goldschmidt this year because I'm not worried about them flaming out. 
Um, I'm not worried about them getting injured because the impact is so much less to my team. So um, we'll get to that, but that's my number two. So with that, uh, why don't I start number three? Yeah, let's hear it. All right, so just like you had to get your Mets in there, Daddy had to get his snakes in this episode. My third bold prediction for 2020 is that Nick Ahmed will not make an error all season long. My man will go perfect from the shortstop position in 2020. I don't even have to back it up. He's one of the best shortstops in baseball. He's got one of the lowest error rates in baseball. And over a 60-game season, there is a good likelihood that he gloves everything how many how many errors did he have last season nick ahmed last season you ask a tremendous question my friend seven errors in the 2019 season interesting so at that 158 games 979 fielding percentage so but that does seem plausible like there was probably some 60 game stretch where he didn't have an error there Maybe not. Yes. It, maybe not, but it's, it's definitely possible at that error rate. I think it's, One, it's unlikely to happen, but it's, it seems possible. And that's why they're bold predictions, maybe. We found one that, yeah, it probably won't happen, but of all the things that could be bold, this one definitely could happen. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's certainly not crazy. And, and I, actually, I, like, was there someone who went a full season last year without making an error? Probably not. Not not over like a full season equivalent. So like no one played 150 games and didn't make an error. Yeah. Okay. So let me go with my third bold prediction. And this is the one that said, I said exactly contradicted yours earlier. And my prediction was that a qualified starting pitcher will have a sub one ERA. So. Well, no, no, no. I said that someone will probably have a sub one ERA. You said sub two. And then you said you said you thought there'd be very few, a couple sub two, very few sub three. Okay, yeah, no, no, I'm sticking to that. I'm sticking to that. But I sub two to sub one for me, that's like they're both just like crazy seasons. Well, but no one's ever had a sub one season over 162 games. I think, and and no one will after this season. <laughs> yeah. But but if we're looking at some 60 game stretches recently where this happened. Ariana, that insane end to 2015, had a a .4 ERA over... That was one of the wildest pitching stretches I can ever remember. That was so sick. And then then Granke had a .6 ERA over 60 games in 2009. When he was chasing that scoreless inning streak. Yeah. The all-time record is Fernando Valenzuela in 1981. Uh, I did where he had a .29 ERA over 60 games. But anyway, my point is Wait, that... Wait, was 1981 Valenzuela's rookie season? It might have been, yeah. It might have been. I think he. Such I think that was his best year. Yeah. Um, Such a boss. Yeah, but I guess what I'm, I'm saying is that yep, it's definitely been done over go. 60 games before. There are so many just incredible pitchers in the league right now that, like, I could totally see one of them getting hot and doing it. So, yeah, that's my prediction. Yeah, and I, I see why you say that contradicts mine since the literal prediction was pitchers are going to suck this year. But I, I almost agree with you. Like, I almost think there's almost definitely going to be somebody – I might stop saying almost by the end of the segment – somebody who is going to ha- be sub one because 
guys get hot. It's the same way that I think, and I should have put this on my bold predictions, but I didn't. I think someone, like, almost for sure is going to hit 400. We'll see. I mean, it's... Over a 60-game stretch? Like, get out of here. It's been a while since someone was at 400 through 60 games, though. Like, I think, like, but it's not like, been, but it's not been a while since someone had a sixty-game stretch where they hit four hundred. Yeah, I mean, that could be true, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. But but speaking of that, actually, because this transitions really well into my number four, a guy who had the closest batting average to four hundred in baseball last year was named Tim Anderson, somehow, and I believe. Tim Anderson in 2020 will hit under 220 and have fewer than 13 home runs. This guy is bona fide bad at hitting, and he will be bad at hitting again this year. He's he's not. I think he was up there with like by expected WOBA, like the luckiest hitters in baseball last year, too. Like, I think he was the second luckiest hitter in baseball by WOBA last year. And I mean, if you just look at like his batted ball profiles, Tim Anderson does not hit the ball particularly hard. I mean, his ex, his ex batting average last year was 294, but he literally hit like 336. So, you know, what are you going to do? 335, what are you going to do about that? That is just almost 40 points higher than his expected. It's 41 points higher than his expected. I, I don't think he's going to hit below 220, but I do share your sentiment that Tim Anderson is not that good. I appreciate that. But, so, but he is. He's just going to drop an egg this year. Uh, so here's my fourth bold prediction, and uh, you know all you fantasy players, listen up. This one, this one, <laughs> listen up, listen good. This is going to be a great value pick for you guys. And here's my prediction that Dingleson Den- Den- Lamette will be a top twenty qualified starting pitcher by either fielding independent pitching or ERA. Let me give you the pitch. Last year he had a four point oh seven ERA but he actually had a 3.9 FIP and a 3.44 XFIP. He was mostly hurt by giving up a lot of home runs. First of all, I don't necessarily expect that to happen in Petco Park again. You have to get really unlucky to give up a lot of home runs in Petco. Or you just have to throw gopher balls, which he does. But second of all, I want to I talk about his – and first of all, let's just say his XFIP was 3.44. Let's just say you expect him to get his XFIP, which is not a crazy expectation. If he did that, if he had been a, if he had enough qualifying innings last year at a 3.44 xFIP, he would have been the 12th best in the league in xFIP. That already solidly puts him as a top pitcher. But now look of starters throwing 70 innings plus last year. He also had the third highest K per nine rate behind Garrett Cole and Chris Sale. Like this guy strikes the world out. He's got the stuff. Already the peripheral stats really like him. And like you said, like he has some contact problems, but like if you look at his average hard hit rate, like it's not it's not bad. It's like sixty seventh percentile. It's not elite, but if you if you if you put that with his contact skills, sorry, if you put that with his strikeout skills, like that's the pieces of of a you know borderline elite pitcher. And you know I'm predicting a big season for for him. There's no question that. Lamet can strike guys out like yeah he's got a pretty decent arsenal but I mean I guess it's good that the thing he's missing is like the ability to quote-unquote pitch because that's the easiest thing to teach a pitcher theoretically but this is a guy who 
really gets out there and just says, I'm going to blow every single person away. And you can't do that in baseball anymore. But, but Guys I think, cheat. I think you're discounting that, like, he was already, like, very good last year. Like, like this, like, I'm not even. He really wasn't, he wasn't very good last year. His XFIP is 100% tainted by his strikeout rate. But, 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 but the point is, is that like that strikeout rate matters a lot. And like, that's why he's so good. Like, if you look at the other pitchers in the top 10 strikeout rate, it's like Garrett Cole, Chris Sale, Jacob DeGrom, Walker Bueller. Yeah. His strikeout rate. We'll see. We'll see. I actually, I very strongly disagree with you on this one, but we will, we will see what happens. Um, That brings us to number five and I'm going to give you the honors. So this is – I'm going in the other direction. I'm predicting bad things for a pitcher that Aaron, I know, likes a lot. And, I, and my prediction is that is Mike – Aaron Nola? No, it's not Aaron Nola. Oh. It's that oh, Mike man. Soroka will have over a four ERA. Oh, you're last, an absolute buzzkill, buddy. Last year he had a 2.68 ERA. But already, if you look at expected ERA, this the StatCast uh, figure based on Baseball Savant, that's already putting him at 4.05. So we're already talking about someone who pitched close to deserving a four ERA last year by expected ERA uh, on StatCast. And, you know, just like Lamette strikes out the world, Soroka does not. He only strike out, struck out 7.3 batters per nine last yeah, he's year. Dallas Keuchel, baby, with of, better stuff. Of, of course, you know, he succeeded in keeping the ball in the ballpark and, you know, not walking many batters. But I just don't think you can be an elite pitcher striking out that few batters in the league. Uh, you know, I think he, he can be a solid three. But I think, you know, people who are expecting Mike Soroka to turn into, you know, a top 10 pitcher in this league are just – are, are diluting themselves based on, frankly, some lucky numbers with his ERA last year. His FIP was worse than his ERA. His XFIP was even worse. And, of course, expected ERA is telling us that even by, by sort of quality of contact, he was getting lucky. So, you know, I, I just I, – I'm, I'm much lower on Soroka than I, than I think a lot of other people are, and I'm, I'm predicting not a great season out. Well, this is a fact I know about you, and and I actually agree. I don't see Soroka as a perennial top end of the rotation type of guy, but I mean, I think he's a good two on almost every team in the league. He's an exceptional three on those teams where he's not the two. Um, He's a good pitcher, and I think that saying he'll be above four is not crazy, but I, I certainly, if I were betting on it, would put him at a lower number than that. Um, my fifth pick is actually my most bold. You know, I saved the craziest for the last year. And that's that we will play more baseball games in 2020 than we do in 2021. What do you think? And this is, is this because of coronavirus or because of some other labor dispute? This is because of collective bargaining. Obviously the limited number of games in 2020 is because of coronavirus, but I believe we won't even get 60 games in 2021, and the reason will be the collective bargaining. Hmm. It's bold, baby. It's bold. I know it. Collective bargaining happens after this season? I thought it was after 2021. I think it's after this season, but if it's not, then boy, are we just going to blow up my fifth pick for this <laughs> Well, we'll, get, we'll give you whatever season, you know, after collective bargaining. Well, but then, you know, I don't know what happens. No, it lasts until December 1st, 2021. Yeah, so it would be the 2022 season. 
Yeah, man, you hate. To oh no, no, no! I well, yeah, yeah. It would be the twenty twenty two season. Yes, agreed. All right, but well then, I, folks, I, I will I will evaluate the the question relative to twenty twenty two. Yeah, mean, give me your premise take. I guess it's the same sort of prediction, and I guess what I'd say is that I don't I don't think that's true. I I hope you're right. I think the I I think the labor dispute will be contentious, very contentious. But I still think the probability that it ends up that we end up not having a season that year is low. But we'll see. But we'll see. I we'll see. I, I hope I'm right. But I hope God. Yeah. Damn it! I hope you're right. What did you have for number five? Soroka was my number five. Oh, he was your number five. Okay. Well then, folks, boy, I'm bummed to see it end, but I guess that means we're out of predictions here, and that'll wrap yeah, the episode that, for us. That was, that, was a, that was a blast of a segment, I thought. You know. That was a great segment. We might have to come at you with some uh, super hot. Maybe next week we'll give you something about uh, the teams that will benefit the most from a 60-game season, some more bold predictions. Um, but to find out, you're just going to have to stay tuned. Yeah, and and folks, we are getting really close. T minus fourteen days, and we are counting down every single one of those. So, guys, as the season starts, you're not going to want to miss the news, the takes, the stats that we're bringing to you. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Play. You do you. Find us the Alonzo Bet. Find us on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet. Email us, the Alonso Bet at Twitter at gmail.com. We are still using email, folks. So whatever way you like to contact us, tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what you'd like to see differently. Give us tips. Leave us comments in your podcasting section. Give us some love. That's all we ask for. Yeah. Echo everything Aaron said. And with that, we <laughs> will, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Signing off, I am Sam. And I'm Aaron. See you later. <laughs>